Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. You can't hide from history. For months, the president and House Republicans have been united in an albeit chaotic and gimmicky defense of Trump's abuses of power, united against House Democrats who have been putting together, brick by brick, a case for his impeachment, a case that culminated this week in a 10-minute vote inside the House Judiciary Committee, with 23 members voting to impeach Donald Trump and 17 voting against. Write down party lines. Republicans didn't have much to work with over the past couple months. A president who relished going off script, oftentimes admitting to the very thing Democrats were accusing him of. The president's lawyer who refused to shut up and go away, instead bouncing all over television and Ukraine, doing the very thing, digging up fictitious dirt on Joe Biden that got the president in trouble in the first place. And rules that Republicans themselves designed back in 2016 that ended up hamstringing them in the hearings. So they tried, well, everything. Smearing courageous witnesses, including Trump appointees, check. Attacking the process itself, check. Obstructing the investigation by withholding relevant testimony and documents, check. Ridiculous stunts like storming a meeting they were actually invited to, check. Try as they might, Republicans could not derail the Democrats' impeachment train. For the third time in a little over a century and a half, the House Judiciary Committee has voted articles of impeachment against the president for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The House will act expeditiously. And next week, the full House will officially vote on articles of impeachment. The first article alleges Trump abused his power by pressuring the Ukrainian president to investigate a Democratic rival and withholding military aid in a White House meeting as leverage in that effort. The second article, obstruction of Congress, is based on Trump's refusal to cooperate with the Democrats' three-month impeachment investigation. It has been Republicans and Trump united against the Democrats. But with the Senate up to bat after the House vote, Trump now has to face Republicans. Republicans in the Senate will decide his fate. Now, no one expects a sudden rush of courage from enough of them to convict and remove the president. It would take a full 20 to do that. But certainly a few Republican senators could defect. But before any of that, though, Trump will have to contend with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, 
Good news for Trump, he is all in to protect the president. We all know how it's going to end. There's no chance the president's going to be removed from office. He's also going to conspire with White House attorneys to get on the same page. I'm going to coordinate with the president's lawyers, so there won't be any difference between us on how to do this. Democrats were outraged by this development, although it's worth noting some Senate Democrats did also talk with Bill Clinton during his impeachment. But I don't recall any of them crossing the particular line Senator Lindsey Graham completely blew through earlier today. I am trying to give a pretty clear signal. I have made up my mind. (laughs) I'm not trying to pretend to be a fair juror here. I'm not going to pretend to be a fair juror, is what he said. So, Senate Republicans, Donald Trump, largely on the same page. And yet, there's one important matter of contention. Timing. McConnell, wanting to clear this from the Senate's calendar and get Trump back on agenda, is hoping to make the trial a quick affair. He's floated the possibility of calling no witnesses, presumably because there aren't many who could actually help the president with their testimony. Trump, on the other hand, wants to drag this out as long as possible through the early Democratic primary states all the way to November, if he could have his way. I'll do whatever I want. Look, there is, we did nothing wrong. So I'll do long or short. I've heard Mitch, I've heard Lindsey. I think they are very much on agreement on some concept. I'll do whatever they want to do, it doesn't matter. I wouldn't mind the long process because I'd like to see the whistleblower who's a fraud. Okay, here's the deal. Mitch McConnell doesn't just want to get impeachment over with to protect Trump. He desperately wants to protect Senate Republicans, too. He knows the longer a trial, the more witnesses called, the more time this takes to await court rulings that could compel more testimony from people like Don McGahn and Mick Mulvaney. Well, the worse it becomes for Trump and the worse position it puts Senate Republicans in. It's a nice thought, but it's also A fool's errand. No amount of parlor tricks or procedural wizardry wizardry will save Republicans from the long lens of history. It is not ambiguous what the president did, how he abused his office for his own political and personal gain. It's clear as day. And it will only get clearer when the fog of impeachment and election politics lifts. And no amount of ducking and covering will save Republicans from the truth, which is that They rubber-stamped this president's corruption and self-interest and opened the door for future presidents to do even worse. No amount of cologne will cover up that kind of stench. Okay, here to discuss former Democratic Senator Evan Bayh and former aide to House Speaker John Boehner, Michael Steele. Mike, let me start with you. I've talked about the cost I think Senate Republicans will pay for protecting the president, Um, and that's because there's more at stake for senators. But what about some key House Republicans? Um, Doug Collins, Jim Jordan, Matt Gaetz, these guys became larger-than-life characters in this melodrama, this soap opera, and they did it by smearing decorated public servants, attacking the process. Um, which many of them helped put into place, obstructing an investigation. We know the president likes that, but what will America think of what those guys did during this time? As long as they're running in Republican primaries in relatively red states, this is probably going to be a boon to their political careers. If at a time when the president continues to command, not the 90 percent he he claims, but 80 percent of support from Republicans, if they're going to run for a higher office, that's probably a net positive. But I mean history. I know they'll probably be rewarded in the short term. That's why they're doing it. Of course. But the long view of what these guys have done in the House 
over the course of this investigation? Look, they're going to have to live with their own consciences. Mm -hmm. I think how history will view them will in some way be determined by when and how the Trump administration ends. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're placing a bet that he will be reelected, yeah. that we will continue to see low unemployment, that yeah. we will continue to wind down wars abroad, that he will remain popular among at least Republicans, if not all Americans. Yeah. And that these sort of um, worries that we're talking about um, are really the the, the cares and concerns of, of the elite. Okay. Well, Senator By, uh, before we get to what the Senate will do, your purview, uh, we obviously expect a party line vote in the House next week on impeachment. From Speaker Pelosi's point of view, do you think she did everything right here, or could could the partisanship of impeachment come back to haunt her at some point? Well, she had a tough uh, a balancing act with the vast majority of the House Democratic Caucus being very eager to impeach the president. And yeah. then a group of about 30 or so moderates who really give them the majority a little more hesitant because their districts are a little more difficult. And so she was very balanced, letting the process play itself out. They then uh, you know, didn't use the kitchen sink approach. They boiled it down to only two of the strongest articles of impeachment. Mm -hmm. So I think she did about as well as could be expected under a pretty tough set of circumstances. Yeah. Okay, Senator. Um, let's move over to to the Senate. There's precedent for White House coordination with the Senate side on impeachment, as as we noted. But what about Mitch McConnell's direct personal involvement? Is that appropriate? Well, in terms of procedure, uh, I don't have a big problem with that. Back, I, mm. I was a juror in the last uh, impeachment trial, and we got yeah. together and on sort of an unprecedented basis had a hundred to nothing vote in favor of the procedures that we adopted for the trial. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's one thing. But I never, you know, Tom Daschle, who was the Democratic leader, uh, to the best of my knowledge, never pressured or asked any senator about how they should vote. That was a matter of individual conscience. And so I guess we wait to see whether uh, Mitch has crossed that line. Lindsey's <laughs> crossed it. But uh, most, I think, want to probably wait and see the evidence and let the trial play out. Well, and uh, yeah, I mean, let's talk about what Lindsey Graham said, because I think it's really interesting um, for a number of reasons. He said, I'm not going to even pretend to be impartial. Uh, I'm I'm struck. Who who thinks this is impartial? I mean, whether whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, has anyone been impartial in this? Isn't this a purely partisan yeah, I mean, this act? Is, this has turned into a shirts and skins exercise. Everyone yeah. has gone to their corner. Everyone's put on their team uniform, and they're they're coming out to fight. I think what Lindsey Graham did is said the quiet part loud. Right. You're supposed to at least pretend that you're a neutral juror, weighing the evidence, looking at the case before rendering a decision. Yeah, I think that's true, uh, Senator. I just want your opinion on what Lindsey Graham said. I'm not pretending to be an, an impartial juror here. Is that sort of a waste of time? I mean, we all kind of have seen how partisan this this thing has played out. Well, it probably will be partisan. And, you know, everybody in Washington belongs to a political party. But as the Chief Justice said about the justices in the Supreme Court, they're, once they're appointed, they don't just, they're not just Democrats or Republicans. They try and do the right thing and follow the law. So I think Lindsey was probably being, you know, honest about what he was saying. But I, I will go back to a comment your other guest made, which I agree with, which is I think most of this will be viewed in the eyes of, in the, through the lens of history through the outcome of the next election. It can go one right. of two ways. It'll either be if the president is defeated, it will be he was a disgraced, impeached, one-term president. If he's reelected, the narrative will be, uh, you know, it was a partisan line vote in the House, a partisan line vote in the Senate. The public, knowing all of this, reelected him anyway. And so really, hmm. in a democracy, SCA, you know, it's ultimately up to the public. Yeah. I think in this case, history will ultimately be written by the people.
Right, well, th before I let you go, Senator, I think that's really interesting. And, and I noticed what you didn't say in the second outcome, if Trump gets reelected, is maybe Democrats made some mistakes. Do you think there will be any of that introspection if he not only got elected once over Hillary Clinton, but maybe a second time over someone like Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren? I am concerned that politically uh, this may not play to the Democrats' advantage. You know, clearly what the president did was not acceptable. That needs to be said right. uh, through the investigation and through a censure or, you know, the articles, what, what have you. But I am concerned that you got the public is so divided. Forty seven percent will say he's innocent no matter what. Forty seven percent will say he's guilty no matter what. And the six percent out there in Wisconsin and western Pennsylvania and some of the other key places, they're going to say, what does this have to do with me and my life and my well-being? Right. Right. Yeah. I'm a little concerned about how that may play in those areas. Hmm. And it might ironically end up yeah. redounding to the president's political, uh, political benefit. No, I, and that's what we've been talking right. about for, for weeks, months, um, how this is all going to shake out politically, because as we know, this is a political exercise. Uh, former Senator Evan Bayh, Michael Steele, thank you both so much for talking to me tonight. Okay, Mitch McConnell said it right out loud. This president is not being removed. So what happens if he, you know, does more crimes? That's next. And later, one red state is looking more and more favorable for Joe Biden. Find out which one when we return. You know what? Impeachment is not a single shot weapon. The you Constitution know, does not say it's a one and done deal. This is not the last impeachment we will cover, Donald J. Trump. You would, Scott, you're what? I mean, what? Wait, what? Impeachment what? today? What? You believe? Impeachment <laughs> tomorrow? Impeachment forever? You actually? <laughs> because I mean, it's criminality, criminality today, criminality tomorrow, criminality forever. Just, the guy's I mean, a one-man crime wave. <laughs> On its face, it may sound far-fetched. Why would Democrats go through all of this again, especially when it's not likely to get Trump removed from office? But it is not by any means outside the realm of possibility. Just last week, before this impeachment is even over, Congressman Al Green told BuzzFeed, if the president commits impeachable offenses, the president can be impeached more than once. So if the Senate doesn't do its job and the president commits impeachable acts, he can still be impeached. OK, Congresswoman Karen Bass made similar comments, but walked them back a little bit on Friday and added this. The committees that have been investigating and providing oversight will continue to do their work. When we send the articles of impeachment over to the Senate, it is possible that we find out new, more information, especially uh, court cases that are making their way through the courts. Okay, so this impeachment may be wrapping up, but don't get too comfortable. Here to discuss our former Hillary Clinton campaign senior advisor, Zach Pet Canis and historian Julian Zelizer. Zach, why are uh, Congressman Al Green, um, Karen Bass, Paul Begala, some other Democrats teasing this idea that impeachment is, isn't just a one-time thing? Well, look, no prosecutor would ever tell a criminal, look, I know we indicted you once, but we're obviously not going to do it again, so go feel free to go mm -hmm. commit more crimes here and there. Yeah. Look, we... Indi make indictments based on crimes that happen. We make impeachments that are based on impeachable offenses. Mm -hmm. And if Donald Trump continues to engage in impeachable conduct, that's what he can expect. That said, from a political perspective, I would really hope that we would all focus on the impeachment at hand at this time. The American people still need to be educated about all the facts that we know about Trump using military aid to pressure Ukraine to interfere in the 2020 election. Too late, sir. Um, <laughs> Julian, to impeach or um, to impeach again, that seems to be the question, is this a realistic uh, prospect? 
It is realistic. Uh, even though politically you could see why Democrats wouldn't want to do it again, yeah. the Senate will still be under the control of Republicans, probably. Uh, even if a minority, they could still stop this. The president is the same person, and he will be the same uh -huh. person in the next few years. And he's not someone who restrains himself when right. it comes to presidential power. So like with Ukraine, I think he will test the limits of what Congress will do. Yeah. And now the House has set a marker. They have said, Democrats, right. we don't accept this. So if it happens again, they might have to act. Well, and to Julian's point, Zach, I mean, Democrats from Nancy Pelosi on down have said, this is not partisan. This is not about politics. This is our constitutional obligation. So if Trump crimes again, won't it again be their constitutional obligation to do it every time? Look, that's exactly right. I mean, look, I think it's really important to distinguish between the two types of offenses that Donald Trump can do. I mean, one is policy differences. Like, sure. we don't like plant closures in Michigan, but we're not going to impeach him over that. Right. But, you know, the reason why... I would Ukraine's, hope not. Yeah. <laughs> it's the reason why the Ukraine scandal is so unique. Yeah. It's that it's about rigging the 2020 election. So this is not an issue that can be resolved with upcoming elections. Mm -hmm. It needs to be resolved now. And if he engages in similar conduct, which, you know, Rudy Giuliani last week was still in a foreign country engaging in the same activity. So it's not outside the realm of possibility. We'll have to go through this whole thing again. Julian, Zach says this cannot be resolved by a vote in November. I think a lot of people would take issue with that, that this should be. Look, the House is going to do its job. The Senate's going to do its job. Whether you agree with the way they vote, they're going to do their jobs um, in taking a vote. A lot of people think, OK, the next court of opinion should be the public's uh, November 2020. Well, that will probably happen. So okay. I'm thinking more if he's reelected, only in that the window is short. I do think there'll be some breathing time that Democrats, too, would want, even if the president does something egregious yeah. in the next few months, because it's election time, because they will have that opportunity yeah. to see him voted out of office. Uh, but if he's reelected, I think that's when this all could come together uh, again. Zach, um, Julian makes the point, of course, that this president doesn't restrain himself. Impeachment, in part, is meant to constrain the president's bad behavior. Um, I'm, I'm sure it will not. In fact, Trump has said he's done nothing wrong. He's attempted to do it again. Um, so what impact does impeachment have if not to curb the behavior it is meant to have impeached? Look, I think at this point we're talking about people's legacies. You know, the votes that members of Congress are taking next Wednesday, that is the only vote that most of them are ever going to be remembered for. Mm. It is that vote. It is going to live with them for the rest of their lives and after they have passed. And so that's what we're talking about mm. here. But no, I think that the system uh, has shown that it is not able to handle uh, when one party consistently acts in bad faith from, uh, from top to bottom. Uh, it's not acting as a deterrent. And I think that's something we're going to have to grapple with after the Trump presidency. But, I mean, it Go did ahead. change national opinion. National opinion in terms of impeachment and even removal is pretty amazing where it is. It's as high as Nixon faced. Right. And so right. uh, this process has defined President Trump. Uh, that will matter in the election. Yeah. Uh, not just the Republican base matters. The rest of the country matters. And, and it will matter in setting a template if he does this again. Because uh, a lot of the public does not trust what he does with his power. Right. And I think that's how it could have an impact. Um, so interesting. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about this <laughs> again. Zach, Julian, really appreciate your insight. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, an update on the latest tragic example of rising anti-Semitism the same week the president signs a controversial order to curb it. And a little later, Joe Biden is betting he can put a red state in play 
Which one might surprise you? This week, two gunmen opened fire in Jersey City, New Jersey, killing a police detective before storming a kosher market and killing three people there. The New Jersey attorney general said the attack was fueled by both anti-Semitism and anti-law enforcement beliefs, and authorities are now investigating it as an act of domestic terrorism. The attack is just the latest in a sharp rise of anti-Semitic incidents across the country. The latest data from the Anti-Defamation League latest found um, that the U.S. is on pace to have another record high year of anti-Semitic incidents since the group started tracking them, the highest being 2017. In a stark coincidence in timing also this week, the president signed an executive order which expands the definition of race and national origin to include Judaism in hopes of combating anti-Semitism. However, the order has caused a huge firestorm and has divided the Jewish community. So what's it about? What's in it? What's not in it? With me now to discuss is CNN national security analyst Sam Vinograd and senior editor at The Dispatch, David French. Um, David, you wrote about the promise and peril of Trump's executive order. I want to cut through the political talking points and people reflexively saying this is all bad or this is all good because it's Trump. Tell me what's potentially good about it, what's potentially bad about it. Well, what's good about it is it's it's really pretty clearly connecting with Supreme Court case law, with Obama administration policy that says, look, anti-Semitism is often, often infrequently, maybe mostly, not motivated by religion, but rather is motivated by shared ancestry, the shared ancestry of the Jewish people. And that fits within the classic definition of title in Title VI Six, yeah. of the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964. So if you're targeting somebody on the basis of shared ancestry, that fits within federal law. That's the good part of this order. It connects, as I said, with Obama. It connects with Supreme Court precedent. The, the part that is perilous is it references some definitions of anti-Semitism that include examples that are protected speech under the U.S. Constitution. I'm not saying mm. good speech. I'm okay. saying protected speech. And the order yeah. says it doesn't intend to violate the First Amendment. Whenever you call out speech protected by the First Amendment, that raises a uh, that raises a legal question. Sam, like I said, it's really hard to cut through the the, the p- political talking points on this. And I, I knew I wanted to do this topic this week. And I just wanted two people that I really think are smart and that I trust. Thank you on these issues. And so I didn't even want to know what does David French think? What does Sam Vinograd think? I just want them both on to tell me what it is. So tell me, putting the Republicans and the Democrats aside. What do people in the Jewish community think of this? Well, there's a range of views, but Essie, I can tell you as the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, as an American, and as a security analyst, I am personally supportive Hmm. of steps to address anti-Semitism. You know, you quoted the Anti-Defamation League earlier. ADL says that anti-Semitism is disturbingly pervasive and moving into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Attacks have increased 99% since 2015. And several of those attacks are occurring on college campuses. So it is is clear that there is a threat. And it is clear that communities across the country, including federally funded uh, educational institutions with this executive order uh, seeks to address, are suffering from anti-Semitic incidences. So the issue now is how effective will this executive order Uh be 
in countering anti-Semitism. And the questions that I have, S.E., are on uh, enforcement and interpretation, but also whether this is married with a larger strategy. This executive order, I believe, is a positive step, but it does not, for example, devote resources to colleges to mm. identify, deter, and combat anti-Semitism, mm. nor, nor is it encapsulated in a broader strategy, let's say, uh, housed within the FBI, to counter white supremacy within the country. So net-net, I view this as an American, as a Jew mm. and as a security analyst as a positive step, but yeah. I am waiting to see what else it is married with. David, I, you know, I wonder, I wonder if we took Trump out of this, right? Uh, you mentioned there's some ties to the Obama administration almost codified in this, um, in this executive order before. Uh, take Trump out of this. How do you think the reception to it would have been? Uh, you know, I think if you'd taken Trump out of it, the reception of it would have been more benign. And if you'd mm. also taken a media mistake out of it, the reception would have been more benign. So the New York Times, when it initially reported on this, essentially said what, what Trump was going to do was make Judaism a nationality, which is not what happened. Okay. And so when you say that, when you raise he's going to make Judaism a nationality, right. is that in some way codifying the dual allegiance sort of notion? No, right. but that's not what happened. So when that was reported, it caused hmm. a firestorm. The reality was much different. The reality was talking about shared ancestry and hearkening back to the actual language hmm. of the statute itself, which is fine and which is a recognition of the common sense reality that anti-Semitism is often not based on religious belief, but on right. ancestry, and the law is designed to combat that. And Sam, quickly, what about this, this idea that it's an attack on free speech, that somehow criticizing Israel, which is not anti-Semitic inherently, um, will sort of become criminalized? Well, President Trump has equated criticizing Israeli government policy with being anti-Semitic. He calls Israelis anybody... Israelis do that all the time. Exactly. <laughs> right. Do Jews. Right. Jewish right. Americans. Right. So he has, he has made that false equivalency, which is not helpful. But Essie, I can't take Donald Trump out of this. Mm. I have a hard time forgetting about the fact that President Trump himself uses anti-Semitic language tropes and has failed to really uh, strategically address white supremacy, which is a root driver of anti-Semitism sure. in this country. Sure. So I don't think it's possible to take mm. President Trump out of this, but I do think that this executive order is po a positive first step towards combating anti-Semitism on college campuses. Uh, Sam, David, as I expected, this was exactly the kind of conversation I knew you would both uh, help sort of define for, for us. So I really appreciate it. Thanks for Thanks. both of your time tonight. Thank you. Okay, up next, uh, where is Biden setting his sights now? The answer might surprise you. And later, after a slip from her summer rise, Elizabeth Warren appears to be getting off the mat. Seeing a whole lot of me between now and next November, God willing. Because if I have the honor of winning this nomination, I'm going to compete here in Texas to win Texas. To win Texas. Former Vice President Joe Biden was in San Antonio last night promising that the Lone Star State is his to win in 2020. Republicans have carried Texas in every presidential race since 1976. So that would indeed be quite an accomplishment Unlikely as it may be, though, a new CNN poll shows there may be a crack in the GOP's grip on Texas. 
in a hypothetical head-to-head -head among voters there. President Trump edges out former Vice President Joe Biden by just one percentage point. That's well within the margin of error. The other top-tier candidates trail Trump by seven points. So what is it about Biden that Texas is opening up to? With me now to discuss is the D.C. Bureau Chief for the Texas Tribune, Abby Livingston. So, Abby, what's happening in Texas? Why is Biden performing so well there? Well, I think, one, Biden's performing better than the other Democratic candidates because of name identification, first and foremost. Texans know who he is thanks to the fact yeah. that he was vice president. Um, but at the same time, if you look at the next tier, seven points is still very close historically in Texas. Hmm. Hillary Clinton carried this, or excuse me, she lost to Trump by only nine points, which was just a historical anomaly. So what we're seeing yeah. is a trend toward Democrats. Huh. Okay. So would you attribute any of Biden's success then um, to his appeal to moderates? Is that impacting numbers in Texas at all? What I can tell you is Democrats on the ground, where the real focus is down ballot. It's on the state House of Representatives because of redistricting and the congressional seats. Their, their feelings are they would not want to see many of them. I can't say it's, uh, it's all encompassing, but many of them do not want a Democratic candidate coming into the state and campaigning on Medicare for all and a Green New Deal. Uh, right. This is a state that the entire economy is, you know, leaning toward energy. And so the, the sort of rhetoric about being against fracking sort of makes some of these Democratic down-ballot folks very nervous. Right. No, no, that makes complete sense. Also, demographics, right? The Texas Demographic Center forecasts that Hispanics will be the largest demographic group in the state by as early as 2022. That's around the corner. And that demographic, as you know, generally votes Democratic. So how is Biden performing among, among Hispanics in Texas? Do we know? I think it's still be, to be determined. I, I, I don't think that's very clear yet. What okay. I can say to, to caution on the Hispanic vote, it is not monolithic in Texas. Will Hurd has returned to Congress based on Hispanics voting Republican. So I, right. I do want to put that caveat in. Right. No, it's an important point. Also important to note, he's leaving. Uh, but that <laughs> but that's, that's a whole other segment. Um, okay, let's move out of Texas just briefly. We learned this week that Joe Biden is picking up former Kamala Harris supporters in the wake of her departure. Uh, are you surprised by that? Not entirely. I, some of the supporters are in New Hampshire, and they made it clear that they were looking at Biden from a pragmatist point of view. This is the idea that we want the guy who is going to beat Trump. Um, what I'm going to be more fascinated with is if Harris supporters in the South start moving toward Biden, um, and he can further consolidate the African-American vote. If that right. happens, Super Tuesday is going to be a big, big day for Joe Biden. Yeah, well, let's talk, let's talk about that a little. No one's been able to touch Biden's stronghold on African-American voters yet, and he'll, he'll need them as any Democrat um, would to win. But back to Hispanic voters, Biden's positioned well in Texas, California and Nevada. In fact, he's leading in all three of those states, which all have large Hispanic populations. How devastating could that be for other Democratic candidates if he performs well in those huge states? Well, I'll also throw in Arizona. And what we've seen uh -huh. happen yep. since 2016 is as the, the rural, I mean, excuse me, the Rust Belt has moved toward the Republican Party, we're seeing almost a swap. It, that's the trajectory. I don't know if that'll actually happen. Right. But say, give up Wisconsin uh, for the Democrats and pick up Arizona. And so we are seeing a real realignment in American politics. So interesting. And we'll have to have you back on when those states kind of start coming coming up um, to talk more about it. D.C. Bureau Chief for the Texas Tribune, Abby Livingston. Thanks so Thank much. You.
Yeah. Okay, Iowa is now less than two months away, and Elizabeth Warren just scored a big endorsement there. I'll talk to that man next. And after seeing... Oh, that's up next. Stay tuned. After seeing some stalled momentum recently, Elizabeth Warren is trying to shake things up. She's taking a more aggressive tone, especially when it comes to her Democratic rivals. Most candidates haven't disclosed the names of their bundlers or finance committees. They are spending time in fundraisers with high-dollar donors, selling access to their time for money. Some of them have spent months blocking reporters from entering those fancy closed-door affairs. We know that one Democratic candidate walked into a room of wealthy donors this year to promise that, quote, nothing would fundamentally change if he's elected president. Not so subtle references there to Buttigieg and Biden. She also earned the endorsement of an Iowa mainstay, Art Cullen, the Pulitzer Prize winning editor of the rural Iowan Storm Lake Times. He's also author of the book Storm Lake, Change, Resilience and Hope in America's Heartland. Joining me now is Art Cullen. So, um, Art, you write in your uh, endorsement that you you like most of the Democratic candidates, of course, and you even give some of them a personal shout out. Why did it come down to Warren for you? Well, uh, because we uh, uh, look at it from a rural perspective. Uh, if nobody else, uh, if we don't look out for rural areas, who will? And mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren uh, started her can she launched her campaign last January in Western Iowa, the most rural and conservative part of the state. And she's uh, uh, drafted a rural agenda uh, that's very compelling and that addresses climate change directly, making agriculture the tip of the spear in the battle against climate change. And uh, she, uh, she articulates the most compelling vision to lift up uh, many of these areas that have been forgotten from Appalachia mm. to the upper Midwest. So do you think then that Bernie Sanders maybe endangers her in Iowa in that he's sort of close to her in terms of policy and could therefore split some of her votes? Well, I don't think uh, Bernie Sanders is necessarily her her prime competition right now. I think Pete Buttigieg might be. Okay. Uh, uh, They they attract many of the same white college-educated voters. and uh, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren have kind of had a truce between each other. They haven't really been riding yeah. each other. And uh, there's going to be a, have to be a reckoning between those two at some point. But I think in <laughs> Iowa, right. uh, the contest with Warren is really with Buttigieg. Yeah, I've been saying the same thing for a while now. Um, so what do you say to the criticism from Democratic candidates like Julian Castro that Iowa has outsized importance uh, considering its population is so white? Well, uh, yeah, he's been he and to a lesser extent Cory Booker have been and, uh, have been criticizing Iowa for its lack of diversity, and that's that's been going on ever since the Iowa caucuses started uh, in the early 1970s. And uh, if that being the case, I'm not sure how Barack Obama was introduced to the country by uh, by the Iowa caucuses, but he was. Uh, but there was a criticism at the time that Obama wasn't black enough. Uh, and so apparently Iowa isn't uh, is uh, isn't sensitive enough to people of color, and I think it's bunk. Hmm. 
Uh, finally, Warren has criticized Michael Bloomberg for trying to buy his way into the Democratic primary. I'm wondering how you think Iowans feel about Bloomberg and what he's doing. Uh... Bloomberg is not coming to Iowa. Uh, we're not thinking about him at all. There's a, there's a, a strong crop of candidates in the field. Uh, Tom Steyer uh, actually is, is a fascinating guy. He has, he has hmm. a lot of money, too, and he's spending $30 million in Iowa, I think. And uh, so people are paying attention to Tom Steyer if you're looking for a billionaire. And uh, I don't think Iowans are really looking for a billionaire. They'd like to throw the billionaire that is in there out of office for uh, ruining the Midwestern economy through this stupid trade war. Our Colin, really appreciate you coming on tonight to talk with me. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks for having me. All right, we'll be right back. If you're like me, you've probably imagined it, a 2020 general election debate between President Trump and the Democratic nominee. Whatever your party and whomever your candidate, it's tempting to fantasize about it. Maybe you're hoping Joe Biden beats Trump like a drum, like he's promised in one of the debates. Or maybe you're drooling over the prospect of Trump creepily lurking behind Elizabeth Warren the way he did Hillary Clinton. Whatever. <laughs> Don't get too excited, though. A new report from The New York Times this week reveals that Trump is discussing with his advisors whether or not he can sit out the general election debates. Why? Well, he says he doesn't trust the Commission on Presidential Debates, which, along with many of the president's least favorite journalism outfits, sponsor and produce the debates. Now, I'm not one to toot my own horn, but loyal viewers of the show will remember I floated this idea back in November. I'm just imagining a uh, uh, general election debate stage if Trump agrees to debate, and I, I'm not sure yeah. that he's going to. And way back in September, I wrote about it in the New York Daily News saying... For some bizarre reason, people seem to be treating it as a foregone conclusion that Trump will participate in general election debates, giving Democrats the showdown they've been dreaming of since January of 2017. I'm here to burst their bubble. It ain't happening. The likelihood that Trump submits himself to three-hour televised sparring matches with the Democratic nominee, no matter who it is, is slim to none, in my opinion. Why is that? Well, he doesn't need them. He's got Twitter. He's got his rallies. He's got Russia to help him out. Furthermore, debating is not required. Other candidates have skipped debates. Trump himself did it in 2016, opting out of the Fox News Republican debate in January. Now, should the president of the United States show up to debates so that voters can see a direct contrast between the Republican incumbent and Democratic nominee? Of course. But don't get your hopes up for that dream matchup. All right, that's it for me. But before I go, I want to remind you that your New Year's Eve plans should definitely include two of my favorite people on the planet, Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen. I love those guys. New Year's Eve live will begin at 8 p.m. on CNN. That's where I'll be. Okay, Ana Cabrera is back with Newsroom next. Stick around.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 